So sometimes when a sports team is not doing well, they got plenty of talent, they've got all the skill, but it's just not working, coach will call them in and say, all right, we need to get back to the... Right. You know, whatever it is, be it um, an intellectual endeavor, a physical endeavor, or a spiritual endeavor, the structure can be built, everything can be just right, the supplies be the best kind, the, everything be done right, but if the foundation is not right, it's all going to come apart. It's not going to work. I'd like to talk about something foundational this afternoon, and uh, I'd like this to be interactive. What I'm doing is I'm going to be taking us through a lesson I put together for sharing the gospel with the lost. I put together a seven-part Bible study last year. Uh, we were all in our homes, and you couldn't interact with people like normal, so thanks to the help of a good brother up in Pleasant Hill, Nick Herman, who works for CBS and is a true professional with video animation and stuff, I made a little audio recording, and he animated it, and I threw it up on Facebook, and have advertised it and stuff, and I invite people to study the Bible with me through email. And I, I don't know how many people I've had take me up on that now. It's quite a number. Um, but this study, uh, it's not some, you know, perfect tool or anything like that, but it was really good for me to put together. And this lesson I'm going to take us through this afternoon, um, I realized as I was putting it together, would just be good for the church to think about. It's bedrock basics, but... Somewhere in the midst of all things, we, we can lose sight of the basics sometimes. So we're going to talk about the church. And we're going to start from the ground up. We're going to start at the very bottom, and we're going to build this thing. And we're going to let the Scriptures walk us through what the church is, what it's supposed to do, and how we can know if we found the right one. So let's start in the beginning. Matthew chapter 16. And I'm just going to be writing passages up here as we go through them. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus is with the disciples in Caesarea. And he has asked them a question. He says, who do men say that I am? And you'll recall, some, they were, he was told, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? I mean, you're my disciples. What do you believe about me? And Peter made his famous answer in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah. Can someone under the age of 20 tell us what the word bar means? Bar Jonah. Why is he called bar Jonah? Anybody know? Son up. That's right. Oh, okay. Very good. All right. Review. So, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So I'm going to ask you a very basic question. According to Jesus, who built the church? He did. He built it, and whose church did he build? Right. On this rock, I will build my church. All right, so basic ideas. Jesus built the church. The church belongs to him. Now, why does it belong to him? Well, he built it. But you know, I know men who build things all the time that don't belong to them. So why is it that the church belongs to Jesus? What makes it his? All right, he paid for it. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which by the way, notice that, in this verse Jesus is called God, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The word redeemed, by the way, there's multiple Greek words that are translated redeemed. But one of them, if you look it up, says it means ransomed. Ransomed. Mark chapter 10, verse 5, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the church are those who are purchased. Jesus built the church. He bought the church. And thus the church belongs to him. Now these are basic tenets, basic principles. These are important, aren't they? Because if someone owns a thing, what, what does ownership give them? Leadership. Leadership. That's good. Ownership prompts leadership. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not good at building things. That's not my gift. But, you know, if I do build a thing or I make a thing, let's say this is something I can make. I can make a peanut butter sandwich. So I make myself a peanut butter sandwich. I lay it here. I'm in a house with seven children, three of whom are hungry males. I walk away and I come back. And someone's been tampering with my sandwich. All right, this is a problem for multiple reasons. But that was mine. It was mine. This church belongs to Jesus. And so he's the one who gets to call the shots. So not surprisingly, Ephesians 5.23 tells us, For as the husband is head of the wife, so also Christ is head of the church. All right. Jesus built the church. He bought the church. The church belongs to him. He is the church's head. And consequently, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, if he is the church's head, we expect that the church is his body. body. Sure. He himself, he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. This is also affirmed in Colossians 1, 24. Now, we're presenting this material. We're, 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 we're stirring up pure minds by way of reminder this afternoon. But remember, this was designed to present to someone who may not be as well informed as we are. So they've just learned, and maybe it's review for them too, at least up to this point. Jesus built the church. He bought the church. The church belongs to him. He is the church's head. The church is his body. All right, I'm with you. But then we come to Ephesians 4.4. 4. Ephesians 4.4, 4, as you can see, Ephesians is a good book if you want to study the church. Ephesians 4.4, 4, what do we learn about the body of Christ? There's one. Now this passage here taught us that the church is his body. The church is his body. So if the church is his body and there's one body, and by the way, this is also affirmed in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. If the church is his body and there's only one body, then how many churches are there? There's one church. There's one church. Would someone read Ephesians 5.23? I already cited it, but let's... I didn't read the last part of the verse. Let's get the whole verse. Ephesians 5.23. If someone could read that for us, please. 
For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. According to that verse, who is Jesus going to save? He's going to save the body. And the body is? Church. You know, we meet people who, they'll say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in the Bible, but I don't need church. I can go out in the woods and I can worship God. You know, you can go out in the woods and worship God. But they say, I don't need the church. I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in the church. It's just me and God. But the Bible teaches us that salvation does not come apart from the church. Salvation comes in the church. These two are not exclusive of one another. Now this can be a revolutionary concept. And how many churches are there? There's one. And Jesus is going to save that church. So if that's the case, if Jesus is going to save the church and there's only one church, we want to make sure we're in that one church. And how do we get into that one church? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. That's not the right passage. 13, pardon me. Would someone read that for us, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And it doesn't matter to me who reads it, just as long as we can all hear you. For by one spirit we are all baptized in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made drink to one spirit. For by one spirit we were all baptized into what? One body. One body. And that body is? So when do I enter the church according to the Bible? When I'm baptized. Now that's not news to you and me. We know that baptism is for the remission of sins. We know that baptism is what brings us into Christ. And if the church is the body of Christ, then of course that means baptism brings us into his body. But this shows us, this is one other way we can help people see that baptism is linked to salvation. I've got to be in the body if I want to be saved, if I want to have a promise of salvation, and I come into the body when I'm baptized. Now, of course, it's not just a dunk. We know there must be true trust. There must be true repentance. But it's that moment. That's the line of demarcation where I enter into the body. Now, let's, what, what's this business of by one spirit we were all baptized into one body? Can anyone explain that to us? Because if I'm hearing this for the first time, I want to know what that's about. What were you going to say, Terry? Holy Spirit. Sure. How, how, how was I baptized by the Holy Spirit? All right, I won't deny there may be some connection there. But that word by indicates he's the agent. He's the one by whom this has happened. What are we told in Ephesians 6 about the word of God? It is the what? And where we got the armor, you got the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of the hope of salvation, your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, your waist is girt about with truth, and then you take up the... Sword of the Spirit, which is the... Okay, what told you and me that we needed to be baptized into Christ? It was the Word of God. And where did the Word of God come from? Through the work of the Spirit. No prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it's by the work of the Spirit that I knew to be baptized into Christ. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Okay, so this is the first chunk of the study. 
Quick review. Jesus built the church, and he bought the church, thus the church belongs to him. He is its head, the church is his body, there is only one body, he will save that one body, and if I want to get into that saved body, I must be baptized. Basic building blocks. Now we move on to a second phase, where we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. First Timothy chapter three, verse 15. Paul has had to leave Macedonia, pardon me, he's had to leave Ephesus in a hurry because of the riot there. He headed to Macedonia, but he's writing back to Timothy. He says, "I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write, verse 15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So the church is not only the body of Christ, it is, of course, the house of God. I've written to you so that you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the what? The pillar and ground, the pillar and foundation, the pillar and buttress, depends on your translation, the pillar and ground of the truth. So according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church is the pillar and ground or support or buttress of the truth. Now what does a pillar do? Supports or upholds. Someone actually made that statement either in class or in a prayer this morning. Uphold the truth. This is what the church does. Now notice, Paul does not say the church should uphold the truth, although that's true. He says the church does uphold the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. So so wherever I find the truth, I will find the church and vice versa. Now, where is the truth found? Simple question. Well, yes, it's found in the church. You got it. And where does the church find the truth? All right. John 17, 17. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we could say it this way, could we not? The church upholds the word of God. Would that be fair to say? All right. Now, how does the church do that? So here's what my question goes. How does the church uphold the truth? That is the word of God. A, by ignoring it. Oh, of course not. B, by misunderstanding it. Of course not. C, by correctly interpreting it. Would that be true? Okay, but is that enough? What else you got to do? What's that? You do, and what do you got to do even before you obey it? Apply it so you got to practice it. So the church upholds the truth by correctly interpreting it, correctly teaching it, and correctly practicing it. There it is. All three of those have to be in the place. All right. Let's go to Acts 2. And let's see what the early church did. It's going to fit right in with this. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 40. And with many other words, he, that is Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
Then those who gladly received his word were what? All right, so they entered in to the one body, the one church, all right? Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they, this new church now, the church, because there's only one congregation at this point, and they did four things. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. But I want us to notice the first one. The very, the very first thing we are told the church did is they continued steadfastly. That means they continued in, they persevered in what? And specifically, how is it described there? The apostles' teaching. Doctrine is an old-fashioned word meaning teaching. The apostles' teaching. All right. So the church, which upholds the truth, the very first thing we're told the church did once it got started was it obeyed, it, pardon me, it persevered in the apostles' teaching. Now what's that have to do with truth? Well, everything. Everything. Because in John 16, 13, which we'll go to here momentarily, Jesus told the apostles that the Holy Spirit's going to come to you and he's going to guide you into all truth all truth but let's look first at something else about these apostles why would the church give such attention to what the apostles taught well, let's look at matthew 16 19 we read 18 let's go back and see what else jesus had to say to peter and would someone read that when we get there a volunteer matthew chapter 16 verse 19 I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. All right. Jesus says to Peter, and the you in the Greek is singular. Whatever you, Peter, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Some translations say, will have been bound, will have been loosed. Now let's just talk about the terminology for a moment. In first century Jewish jurisprudence, in the language of the day, to bind meant to prohibit, to loose meant to permit. If you bound, you prohibited a thing. If you loosed it, you permitted it. All right? That's how laws work. You can't do this, you can do this. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, whatever you bind, whatever you prohibit, obviously by inspiration, will be, have been prohibited in heaven and vice versa. So my simple question is, well, but now wait a minute. That's to Peter, right? Some of our religious friends would say, well, you see, Peter was the first pope. Peter was special among the apostles, and he was given special authority. He was going to be the vicar of Christ. Yes, whatever he binds and loose is going to have been bound and loosed in heaven, or heaven will respond to him. He is going to be the authority. Well, what about the other apostles? Two chapters later, Jesus talks to all the disciples, all the apostles, and notice what he says. Matthew 18, 18. I surely I say to you, and here the Greek you is plural. Again, I say to you, or you all, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. All right. So this command was given to both to all the apostles. Now here's my question. 
Here's what I have here. Did Jesus say, I'd like to know your answer to this. Did Jesus say that what the apostles prohibited and what the apostles permitted would be authorized by heaven? Yeah. So no wonder the, no wonder the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. What the apostles taught had the authority of heaven behind it. And furthermore, and this I think is an important point, in John 16, in John 16, verses 13 through 15. Let's notice very carefully the language Jesus uses there. John 16, 13 through 15. Would someone be willing to read those verses for us? John 16, 13 through 15. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Yes, please. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said he's, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Now, who's the head of the church? Jesus. Have you ever wondered? Now, maybe I'm because I'm so literal-minded or I get hung up on the obvious. Jesus is the head of the church, and yet... What do we find the church doing? Continuing in the apostles' teaching. And we got all these books. We got 27 books in the New Testament. And most of it is not what literally Jesus said. It's what these men who came after him said. And we're supposed to follow that, but Jesus is the head of the church. There are those who say, well, Jesus' teachings are up here and the apostles' teachings are down here. You ever met people like that? I ran, into that, I ran into that for the first time my freshman year in high school. I was in a social science class. And my teacher, who I liked, I found out at the end of the class, I brought up something the Apostle Paul had said. And she, was a, she, was, she would have called herself a Christian. But she said, well, I don't accept everything Paul wrote. Because, see, Paul's not on par with Jesus. But wait a minute. Notice what Jesus said to the apostles here. He said, not only in verse 13 will the Holy Spirit guide you into all truth, but furthermore, in verse 14, the Holy Spirit's going to glorify who? The Holy Spirit's going to bring glory to who? To Christ. He's going to bring glory to me. Why? How's he going to do that? What's the rest of the verse say? He's going to declare what, though? And where's he going to get that word? Yes, but where's the Spirit going to get it? Nope. Isn't that what he says? Look at verse 14. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And then Jesus says it again. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. You ever notice the difference? When Jesus is all hanging on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But when Stephen is being stoned and killed, what does he say? 
He does say, lay not this sin to their charge. He does say something similar to what Jesus did. But when he says, into your hands, I can, or he says, receive my spirit, who does he say it to? Let, let's turn to that. Yes, yes. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Verse 59. Acts 7, 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, what? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Why doesn't he say, Father, receive my spirit? We go through Jesus. Who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now? Jesus. What did Jesus say after his resurrection? Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You remember Joseph? Joseph comes up out of prison. He interprets those dreams for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, well, I don't think we can find anybody wiser than you. I'm putting you in charge. Whatever you say goes. You have authority over all the land of Egypt except what? My throne is mine. I run, I, I'm the ultimate authority, but I, the ultimate authority, have committed authority to you, and you run the show. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that God the Father has done the same thing with Jesus. Let's read that passage, just so I'm, it ain't coming from John Morris, because that's not worth anything. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, we're going to start in verse 24. And in verse 24, it's talking about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Talking about the end of time and Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. What's that talking about? Well, right now, Jesus is the one who rules in the kingdom. Jesus is the one who has all authority and all power. But at the end of time, after the judgment, Jesus is going to give the kingdom back to the Father and put an end to the rule and authority that he now possesses. Uh, verse 25. For he must reign, that's Jesus, till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So at the resurrection, Jesus will gain victory, final victory over all even though he has power over death already because he's already destroyed it. But for the rest of us, that's not yet been completely put to death. Well, at the resurrection that will happen, all enemies will then have been fully and officially put under his feet, and then he will give the kingdom back to the Father. Uh, verse 27, For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is... Accepted. So just like the Pharaoh put everything under Joseph except himself, so also God the Father has put everything under Jesus right now except himself. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Holy Spirit does not, Jesus is saying, back to John 16 now, Jesus says to the apostles, Apostles, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth, but he's not going to get that truth directly from the Father. He's going to get it from me, now, I got it from the Father, granted. But everything the Father has, Jesus says, has been given to me, and then I'm going to give it to the Spirit, and the Spirit will pass it along to you. Now, why am I lingering on all this? 
Because if the apostles speak truth that came from Jesus, the Spirit gets it from Jesus and then gives it to the apostles. If the truth they speak is from Jesus, then when the apostles speak, who's ultimately speaking? Jesus. And this is why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, all right, anybody out there, oh, you think you're a prophet, you think you're spiritual, okay. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of who? The Lord. And who's the Lord? There's one spirit, Ephesians 4, 4. There's one Lord, and there's one God and Father. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point is this. We can help people see that the apostles' words ultimately are Jesus' words. The apostles' words are not inferior. What we have are Jesus' words coming through a different vehicle. Jesus spoke some of his words with his own mouth, and he spoke some of his words through the mouths of his apostles. He spoke some of his words verbally. Some of them he spoke vicariously. But when we follow the apostles, who are we really following? Jesus. So Jesus is the head of the church, yes. And when I follow the apostles who got their words from him, I'm following him. Now, this is basic for you and me. But for others, it might not be so much, that case, so much the case. So bringing this all together then, 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. First John 4, 6 reads as follows. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So I got a question. Who is we? We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. Who's the us? Who's the we? I think that's right. Can we prove it? Because, you know, sometimes we in 1 John doesn't mean just the apostles. You go over to chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, and it's talking about all of us. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that whatever we ask, we have the petitions that we've asked of him. That's you and me. That's everybody. But this we, I do believe, is the apostles. What would lead us to believe that? Well, let's put it in context. 1 John 4, verse 4, begins with what word? You. All right, so words mean things. These are pronouns. I know this is exciting for some of us. I liked diagramming sentences in school. I was one of those weirdos. Yeah, <laughs> Beverly's like, <laughs> keep your distance. All right, so 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children. So you that I'm writing to, you're the you. And then notice in verse 5, speaking of the false teachers, they are of the world. Now they is not part of you. You are of God. They are of the world. 
So we've got you, the people you're writing to, they, the people we're writing about, and then in verse 6, we. So the we is separate from the you. This is a specific we. Who's the we? Who's the we? We go back to chapter 1 and we find out. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, this is not how we would write it, being English speakers in the 21st century, but this is how John wrote it. Let's start at the end of the verse. The end of 1 John 1.1, he talks about the word of life. Remember with me the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing that was made was made. In him was life. So the very same author, when, author, when he wrote the gospel, spoke of the word, and that word was life. That word was Jesus. Here, he mentions the word of life. And not surprisingly, at the beginning of the verse, what does he say about the word of life? That which was from... The beginning. In the beginning was the word. This word, this word of life he's talking about is Jesus. And then what does he say in verse 1? That which was from the beginning, Jesus, we heard, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon. The Greek is telling us we not only saw him, we had opportunity to gaze upon him, take him in. And our hands have what? Handled. Who handled the Lord? It was the apostles. Luke chapter 24, verse 39, Jesus told the apostles upon his resurrection, handle me. So I went a long way to prove a simple point. The we here is the apostles. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, whether you listen to us or not, this tells us whether you are of the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. So here's my question in this study. If we do not hear, and we all know hear, hear doesn't mean just I've heard it. It's like when we say to our kids, now, you need to make sure you do this. You hear? And we don't mean, did you hear me? We mean, are you good? do you understand? Are you going to do it? All right? If we do not hear what the apostles have to say, according to this verse, if we do not hear what the apostles have to say, do we know God? No. Must the church today uphold the word of God and hear the apostles' teachings, which actually came from Jesus and are his commands, in order to be pleasing to God? Yes. All right. So let's get down to brass tacks. We've been theoretical the whole afternoon. Let's get down to brass tacks. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. He is not all of God. There is, of course, the Father and the Spirit, but he is God. He allowed himself to be worshipped eight different times during the Gospels. And what did Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. He allowed himself to be worshipped. He forgave people of their sins. You can't forgive sins which are committed against God unless you're God. He... Um, told people that he was God. So, there are people who come knocking at my door. Maybe they knock on yours too. 
And I'm not talking about the ones with the label on their pocket. Often it can be, it can be all different ages, men, women. And they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. And they teach that Jesus is not God. If you ask them this, um, they'll say, well, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. And you think, oh, well, that's what I believe. No, that's not what you believe. I don't think. They believe that Jesus is really Michael, the archangel, and that God gave him a new name, that Jesus was created, that God, at the very before he created the world, created Jesus and then used Jesus to create the world, and that Jesus is a created being, that he is not from everlasting to everlasting, as the scriptures affirm. The apostles' doctrine, which we must hear if we wish to be from God, says that Jesus is God. And furthermore, 2 John 2.9, 2 John 9, pardon me, because there's only one chapter. 2 John 9 says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Now, there are a whole bunch of other things that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that are not accurate. But, if a church today teaches that Jesus is not God, but is instead a created being. Is that church upholding the word of God and hearing the apostles' teachings? No. And according to John, that tells me that church is guided by the spirit of error. Philip's told to go talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's him reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip preaches Jesus to him. And after Philip preaches Jesus to him, what does the eunuch ask him? The very first thing. Yeah, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Even though the scripture says he preached Jesus, preaching Jesus apparently did include baptism because his first question is, what, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He responded that he did believe. And they both went down into the water. And they both came up out of the water. All right? The word baptism, baptisma, that's the noun in the Greek. It means immersion. It's called a burial in Scripture. The Bible says that they went down into the water, came up out of the water. John the, baptize, John the Baptist, baptizer, baptized in Ainan near Salim because there was much water. He, did, he, needed, he needed more water than you need for sprinkling and pouring. It was an immersion, all right? So we know these things. All the witnesses, by the, about the two or three witnesses, every word is established. The examples show me it's immersion. The word shows me it's immersion. The fact that it's called a burial shows me it's an immersion. If the church today teaches that baptism is not an immersion or that baptism can be performed however a person prefers, including sprinkling or pouring, is that church upholding the word of God and hearing the apostles' teachings? No, that church is guided by the spirit of error. That church is not of God. That's what John says. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. Another example. The Bible teaches that baptism is for what purpose? We've mentioned this already, but let's hear it. What's baptism for? All right, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I like to ask people that. I'll ask them as we're studying, okay, can you be saved without your sins forgiven? And they'll go, no. 
And then we'll look at when the Bible says your sins are forgiven. Can you be saved outside of Christ? No. And then we'll look at how baptism brings us into Christ, Galatians 3.27. Can you be saved without the Holy Spirit? No. And then we'll show how baptism is the thing that prompts the bringing of the Holy Spirit. If a church today teaches that our sins are forgiven and that we are in Christ and saved before we are baptized, is that church upholding the Word of God and hearing the apostles' teachings? They're not. They're not. Am I challenging their sincerity? No. But are they hearing the apostles' doctrine? Are they persevering, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? They're not. You know, in the case of the Galatian letter, Paul said that they were teaching a false gospel by saying you had to do more than God required. These churches teach a false gospel by saying you have to do less than is required. But what did Paul say about those who teach, taught a false gospel? Strong words. They're strong words. As we begin to close, and this really isn't part of the flow, it's just kind of an aside. Matthew 15, 9. Jesus said, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Doctrine matters. John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus said, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him how? Yes. In spirit, your heart's got to be in it. It's got to be genuine. That's absolutely necessary. But it's not by itself enough. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Those who teach the doctrines of men as if they were the doctrines of God, it makes their worship in vain. It makes it empty. It makes it purposeless because worship must be done in spirit and in truth. So here's how I close my study. In light of what we have learned, that the church must uphold the word of God and hear the apostles' teachings, that many churches do not do this, that teaching the commandments of men as if they were the doctrines of God will cause our worship to be in vain, and that our worship must be in spirit and in truth, in light of those things, will worshiping with just any church please God? And of course, the answer is, is no. <clears throat> you know, my guess is, well, I'm, I'm, get, I'm guessing because I wasn't living there, but based on the reading I've done and the things I've heard, 50, 60 years ago, 40, 50, 60 years ago, these truths were generally understood among us. This was just kind of par for the course. No generation gets it perfectly right. We just were people and we end up overemphasizing or underemphasizing. But these things were understood. And what I have discovered is somewhere along the line, I, again, I know I'm a spring chicken, but I'm starting to learn. I, was, I just spent three days with a young man last week. A fine young man. I think very highly of this young man. But he wanted to do a little work with me, and so we worked together for three weeks, and I just could not believe it became this laughing point among us, even at the meager age of 46, how much of, of my life, how much that I remembered, was totally out of reach for him because he hadn't been born yet. You say Wilford Landis and Winford Lee and Bill Hetz, these were just names to him. They're just names. 
And I know you guys can relate to this. And I think that may play into why we, we stop emphasizing some things. I put a lesson together on the subject of modesty about 16 or 17 years ago. And there was about a year, year and a half or two where I and some others were kind of teaching on that subject around the brotherhood because it was not a subject I had really heard teach, taught growing up. And I felt like it needed to be taught on. So I taught on it for a while. And then I was surprised to learn, I think even hearing from my own kids, some of my own kids, that they'd never heard a lesson on modesty. I was like, how can that be? Oh, you're 15. That's why you never heard me talk on it. because I. So these things can be forgotten. We can forget that the younger have not heard them. And uh, I'm not saying that's an issue here, but I think it has been an issue to some degree in the brotherhood because we have seen way, it's one is too many, but we've seen quite a number in the past two, three, four years leave. And they're going to these evangelical churches, they're going to these other churches, and they're saying things like the following, I'm not leaving the church, I'm just going to another congregation in the church. And it's because that these fundamental truths either were not taught or didn't get absorbed. But we've got to stick with the basics. There's this thing called the church that Jesus came for to build and buy. And he didn't do it without reason. It's an integral part of the salvation process. And we always want to hold it as such. So I thank you for what you do here in Lawrence. And uh, may your work continue to glorify God and his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to extend the invitation now to anyone who uh, is ready for it. I don't know how many invitations uh, I've heard in my life. It's quite a number. How many do you think you've heard in your life, Calvin, if you had to do the math? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but one of these days, we're all going to hear our last invitation. One of these days, we're all going to hear our last and we don't want it to be one that we should have taken the Lord up on. So let's stand and sing.